0: Recorded live. Well, uh, once again, this bike Mike. Can I do another uh, part? Part, uh, I guess, where we at? Part six now? I oh, know I'm in one of my marathon things here. Um, so, hopefully for those who are interested and they come back, they'll listen to it. I personally am getting an awful lot out of this reading of this book, by old Charles R. Swindle, a man of heroic endurance, Job. I'm going to clean my glasses here. I'm going to put another one in. Because I really don't have anything to do. For tomorrow, God be willing, and God shall bless me with the opportunity of getting a couple of chickens <laughs> baby chicks yeah i know what no why not i've always wanted to have some chickens so chapter 6 responding to bad counsel Boy, have I been guilty of giving bad counsel before, that's for sure. Not all advice is good advice, not even when the one who gives the advice thinks it's the right advice. Sometimes it's given in all sincerity, but it is still faulty. A story I was told recently comes to mind. A man had finished lunch and was in his car driving towards the next appointment. His mind drifted back to the previous evening. It began to be trouble about the heated argument he had with his wife. It was one of those ongoing, unresolved conflicts. So he decided it was time to make up. Feeling guilty over some of the things he had said, he picked up his cell phone and hurriedly dialed home in the midst of the traffic jam. When the maid answered the call, he said, I'd like to speak to my wife. She responded, well, she told me she didn't want to to be disturbed right now. Curious, he asked. "Um, Doesn't want to be disturbed. The maid said, that's right. She's upstairs with her boyfriend, and she told me that she doesn't want to be interrupted. Infuriated, the husband lost it. You know where I keep my shotgun? Go get it and put two shells, put in two shells, then walk upstairs and kill both of them. She put down the phone, got the double barrel shotgun, walked upstairs. He listened and heard two blasts, then waited. She came back down calmly, picked up the phone, and said, Okay, it's done. They're dead. What do you want me to do with? the bodies. He said, throw them in the pool and I'll take care of the rest of it when I get there, she said. She said, we don't have a pool. He paused and then said, is it, is this (laughs) 728-3604? Now all advice is, not all advice is good advice. Not even when a person Giving the advice thinks that it's the right advice, good advice, bad advice. Every person reading this chapter has been the recipient of bad advice. You listen to you listen as someone gave it to you. You follow the counsel you received and then suffer the consequences. On the other hand, we have all benefited from someone's good advice. We were unsure and confused, so we reached out to somebody we trusted, received good counsel, followed, by, uh, followed the advice, and enjoyed the benefits. In the Bible, there is a book of wise counsel. It's called Proverbs. Thirty-one chapter A 31-chapter book full of wise and helpful advice. Take, for example, Proverbs 12.15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he that listens to counsel. You and I have experienced those very words. We have been foolish thinking we were right. How long came a parent or a teacher, perhaps a friend, who talked some sense into our head? Thankfully, as a result, we benefited from wise counsel. Another proverb, 1624... Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. I love that. Words given at the right time, Solomon writes elsewhere, are like apples of gold in setting of silver. Like apples of gold in setting of silver is the word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to listen to a listening ear. Excuse me. Chapter, uh, Proverbs 2511 11-12. Good counsel, wise reproof, obedient response, and the benefit comes rolling in. The Ultimate Win-Win Situation, this ancient book of cock-full, similar statements, cock- I meant to say chock <laughs> Listen to the counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise the rest of your days, Proverbs 19.20. And another, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, Proverbs 27.17. We all know the benefit of a good friend who sharpens us with wise counsel. Even the person's presence sharpens sharpens our lives. Solomon writes a similar thought in in the same chapter. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. Proverbs 27.19 I'm sure you have known such occasions. You've had something deep in the well of your heart you have not been able to pull out. Along comes someone who loves you and has the ability to drop a bucket in the deep well of yours and pull it out, then splash the contents around for both of you to see it clearly. I need to add that wisdom counsel that wise counsel excuse me, I need to add that wise counsel is not always easy to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs twenty seven six. The Hebrew uses the Hebrew uses an interesting verb stem in the early part of the verse. It's known as a causative stem, which allows us to render the statement, trustworthy are the bruises caused by the wounding of one who loves you. The bruise that comes after the verbal blow of one who loves you is a trustworthy bruise. In genuine love a friend confronts you with the truth you're you're alone and private you hear the hard thing that needs to be confronted that bruise stays with you and you're better you're a better person for it such bruising is much more helpful and reliable than a phony embrace the kiss of a flatterer whom Solomon calls our enemy. Good counsel is a good thing, even if it hurts to hear it. And then there's bad counsel. Someone, some one-liners would sound like this: Look, why do you go ahead? Why don't you go ahead and marry him? He'll change after you're married. Another one is, you know. Since I'm an expert of financial matters, this feels right. I think it's worth the $10,000 investment in Enron stock. Three, bright and capable as you are, don't bother about finishing school. Do you have any idea how many millionaires there are today who never graduated from high school? Another one, the wealthier, excuse me, the weather's pretty bad, but I've flown in worse. Come on, get in. I think we can make it over the clouds without much difficulty. Bad counsel. Back to Job in the pits. We left Job in what we might call black pessimism. His depression was deep. Is he despised the day he was born. He hated the thought that he lived after being born. Over and above all that, the silence of God was driving him up the wall, up a wall. So the man didn't hold back. He said it. All. He said it all. When we left him, the dear man was lower than a well's belly. Three friends sitting nearby said nothing as they stared at him. They have completed seven days and seven nights in silence, watching and listening, forming their opinions. At first, it was hard for them to believe it was really their friend, Job. He looked so different than before. His head is shaved. His face is swollen. He's scabbed over with all these running sores. If you look closely there is a tiny there there are tiny worms in some of them it's grotesque he keeps squirming from one position to another he doesn't feel comfortable sitting on the ground and he's so miserable lying down his nights are full of groans and restlessness Slowly and agonizingly, he tries to get into a position that will bring a few minutes of relief. Or I relate to that, And can't do it. As the sun rises, its searing rays burn his skin as he sits in the trash dump of the city. Not even his wife can bring him relief. The man is tormented by his afflictions and broken in spirit. If anyone on earth ever needed the comfort of a friend, Job did. His friends came, but comfort was not to be found. It was bad enough to have them sit and stare in silence, but when they opened their mouths, things only got worse. Talk about bad counsel. Oh, they didn't mean it to be bad. They just lost sight of their purpose, and what was that stop and or remember originally they came to sympathize with him and to comfort him job 11 job 2 11 of the hundreds of business associates and dozens of friends job knew only these showed up in fact they came for the right reason they came to him as we would drive to the hospital to visit a friend who is terribly ill You and I don't know what to say, so we often stand nearby and say very little. Admittedly, there are times we speak and say the wrong thing. We leave thinking, why did I say that? I wish we had just stayed quiet. Total silence is much more better than inappropriate words. We've all blown it by saying a little more than we should but these men are go too much go so much further than that they mix blame and shame combination and judgment they heap a, a, on loads of legalism and uh, to drive their point home they resort to sarcasm and argument but comfort sympathy both got lost in the heat of a verbal pushdown, put verbal putdown, excuse me. a little structure to begin with. Let me offer a few clarifying comments as we turn the corner in job's life and begin the dialogue between him and his friends. Four are worth mentioning. First, the first two chapters of the book of Job. And the final 11 verses of the last chapter, chapter 42, are written in a narrative form. As I explained earlier, this style is known as prose. The two sections of prose represent history. Being factual and straightforward, they are easily understood. There isn't a lot of mystery. You may have questions, of course, with these opening two chapters, but you have no trouble understanding the words and the flow of action. At the end of the book, you find yourself thrilled because it all turns out so well. Job gets double everything except children, since that probably would have been a blessing to have twice the number of children at his age the Lord is gracious and allows him and his wife to have only ten. Wait a uh, Since that probably wouldn't have been a blessing, excuse me, to have twice the number of children at his age, the Lord is gracious and allows him and his wife to have only ten more children. We think it would be, uh, excuse me, we think it when people who have suffered Wind, uh, wind, wind up living wholesome, fulfilled lives. So much for the prose section. Excuse me. We like it when people have suffered, wind up living wholesome, fulfilled lives. So much for the prose section. Excuse me. In between, we find numerous chapters of poetry, like. The Psalms and the book we referred to earlier, Proverbs, Job, is mainly poetry. Therefore, as I mentioned already, it reads like poetry. This means there are repeti- repetitious phrases along with colorful word pictures. Some things, uh, as you will soon discover, are beyond our capability of under- to understand fully which is to be expected, but most of what we read can be grasped. In fact, much of it is beautifully written, beautiful, excuse me, is beautiful writing. Beautiful, but a bit mysterious, even a little mystical at times. The prose of Job is historical, while the poetry is philosophical. That explains why it's sometimes difficult to understand. Philosophical statements can be convoluted. One of my mentors used to say that a philosopher is a person who talks about things he doesn't understand, but he makes it sound like it's your fault. Philosophy requires that, you keep, that we keep our thinking caps on. And even then, something doesn't register clearly. I don't. I'll do my best to keep things interesting from one chapter to the next. But you'll need to concentrate with me, as one of our church members noted while I was preaching through Job. There, uh, there aren't any car chases to keep the teens on the edge of their seats. And let's see. Okay. Oh, well. Just do show it up again and then hung up. I imagine people aren't too interested in the car chase. Second, this poetic section, which is the largest part of the book, Job 3 1 through 42 6, begins. As a mild discussion. It then turns into an intense debate. Finally, it ends in a heated dispute. Job's first friend, Eliphaz, I guess I said, I never knew how to pronounce it, Eliphaz, begins with his hat in his hand as he approaches Job. Initially, he reluctant and downright civil, but towards the end, There's no hesitation or reservation. By then, he's got his index finger jammed against Job's sternum. Determined to set him straight, gentle discussion arose into angry debates. There Job's three friends, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar, take turns as they dialogue with him. Their words appear in cycles, three cycles to be exact. In the first cycle, Eliphaz speaks, then Job answers. Next, Bildad talks, and Job answers. And finally, Zophar turns. Finally, it's Zophar's turn. He makes his initial comment, comments, and Job answers. At that point, round one ends. Then Eliphaz comes back on the scene to start the second cycle of dialogue. He's apparently the oldest of the group. In those days, age was given the honor of top priority. So, like before, Eliphaz speaks first and Job answers him. Bildad follows as Job answers him and Zophar again speaks last. Then Job answers him. When we get to the third cycle, for some unraveled reason, Zophar has stepped out of the dialogue. Maybe he got tired of arguing and decided, I'm out out of here. This is going nowhere. And then you'll remember, by the time we arrive to Job 32, another friend comes on the scene, the youngest of the group, named Eli. I guess it's Laihu, or Laiyu. I don't know. So say Laihu, Laihu. Interesting, Laihu. Uh, does a monologue, but Job never answers him. Maybe by now Job is thinking, "I've heard all I'm going to listen to." I think the man, the man is simply exhausted. He sees no purpose in providing more answers. I have the feeling he chose to discontinue the argument. Fourth, one final tip. I should mention that Eliphaz bases his words on experience. He repeats the same phrase. I have seen, I have seen. In light of what he had experienced, Eliphaz said what he did about Job's situation. He said what he did about okay, okay, Bildad is different. He bases his words on tradition. And he says to Job, inquire the past generations, Job 8 and 8. He urges Job to go back into the chronicles of history and check what happened there. In effect, Bildad says, in light of that, tradition teaches us this. When we hear from Zophar, the harshest of the three, We find that he throws tact to the wind as he gets in Job's face with both fists clenched. Zophar's impatient and angry words are based on assumptions. Let me add here, all three are legalistic. They are judgmental and condemning to a man They resort to shame-based counsel. Sometimes you'll shake your head and say, how in the world could they say that? Why would they say something like that to somebody they called their friend? Let's face it, we tend to do that sometimes, that same thing, excuse me, sometimes. Excuse me, there's no sometime. Let us face it, we tend to do that same thing. We get so intent on setting the record straight that we just push ourselves in and bluntly say our piece. At that point, we are not only cut to the chase, we do some slaughtering with our tongues. It's like a verbal fistfight, which is why it's called a tongue lashing. As the heat of the debate intensifies, we will witness that kind of ugliness. Setting the stage for dialogue, man, men, can you remember a major argument you had with your wife? Stop and think about it. Maybe it went on for a few hours and it got really intense. No, I've, I've never had that. I never had that kind of argument. I never have. So I can't relate to this. So you wound up sleeping on the patio. After about the second night out there, you start to feel lonely. So you decide you'll think you'd like to come in and kind of get cleaned up. You slowly push the door open and you go... Hi, 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 honey. Hey, nice hair, pretty dress. Something like that. You're sort of uh, breaking into a new conversation. Well, that's the way life starts out. He sat nearby for seven days and nights. He heard Job unload his truck full of turmoil and torment. He realized at least here... At first, things are awfully tender. Reluctantly, he decides to break the ice and offer a little counsel. Eliphaz preaches. I guess if I pronounce it. Eliphaz, I don't know how to pronounce it. Generally, he starts, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Job 4.2. We've all been there, maybe with one of our kids. There's been a long period of silence, so they try to be sensitive as they ease into a discussion. That's the tone of Eliphaz, opening words. But who can refrain from speaking? He has, in so many words, silence isn't solving anything. Our daughter... I, guess I, uh, oh, it was this, I don't know, Charissa. I guess it is Charissa. Carissa. Maybe this was Carissa. Sent me sent me a funny photograph of a couple of adult lions. One was a big male lion with his thick chunk of mane around his neck. And the other was a weary-looking lioness who has obviously had cubs not too many days ago. She's kind of hanging down to the ground. Big Daddy is drooping, is dropping by for another little visit in the video, or in the photo, excuse me. She's letting out an enormous roar while her fangs fully exposed. She's also got her paws up near his face with long claws extended. Her mouth is wide open as she growls like she's saying, don't even think about it. The old guy sort of ducks his head and sleeps back with his ears flat against his head. Carissa and I had a good laugh over the feisty lioness who is roaring at the old rascal who is suddenly very reluctant to come nearer any nearer, excuse me. Well that's Eliphus. He hesitates to break the silence, so he flies in with a very with a very courteous Behold, you have admonished many and you have strengthened weak hands. 4, 3. And then he adds, your words have helped the tottering to stand and you have strengthened feeble knees. Job 4, 4. That was true. Job had done all the above but with the innocent with that innocent sounding contrastive contrastive, connective elicitive, I guess turns the corner verbally. He is about to throw his first jab. He does it with heavyweight gloves on. Ever so gently, he says, but now it has come to you, and you are impatient. Job 4.5 With that, Eliphaz stops comforting and starts preaching. You have spent your life giving other people counsel and telling people how to stand firm and how to survive life's storms. And now something difficult has happened to you and you're irritable. It's as if he's saying, as long as you're on the giving end of things, you're good at giving advice. Now you're under it and you're out of control. Watch how he builds To a climax. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Job 4 5 and 6. Isn't that about it, Job? I mean, I'm not questioning your integrity, but you're impatient. With what has happened to you, seems to me you're not a person everybody thought you were. With life as twists, the n- with that a life as twists in the knife. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what have I seen? So, who ploughed iniquity? And those who sow trouble harvested, Job 4, 7 and 8. Look closely, Job. You are getting what you deserve. Hmm. The message puts everything on the bottom shelf. Would you mind if I say something to you? Under the circumstances, it's hard to keep quiet. You yourself have done This plenty of times spoken words that clarify and encourage those who are about to quit. Your words have put stumbling people on their feet and put fresh hope in people about to collapse. But now you're the one in trouble. You're hurting. You've been hitting hard and you're reeling. You've been hit hard and you're reeling from the blow. Shouldn't you devour? Shouldn't you devote life? Shouldn't your devout life give you confidence now? Shouldn't you, shouldn't your exemplary life give you hope? Think: Has a truly innocent person ever ended up on the scrap heap? Do genuinely upright people ever lose out in the end? It's my observation that those who plow evil, sow trouble, reap evil and trouble. Job 4, verses 8 through 2, MSG. That's When you analyze those words, you see there's shame in them. Job, if you're that innocent, why are you here in this predicament? Frankly, it 's my observation that people who suffer like this have got sin in their life. If Eliphaz came to sympathize and comfort, this was a weird way to do it. He did not lift up his friend, he shoved him down further, bad counsel bad, bad counsel does that, and this certainly qualifies as bad counsel, especially since None of what he says, what he's saying, is true. Elephas wonders, whoever suffered without deserving it. How about every martyr? How about victims of abuse and murder? How about the Son of God, the innocent, the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, the one who did no sin, no knew no sin. Had no sin, without deserving it, he was nailed to the to a cross, and he's the one who says, "Father, forgive them, they do, they don't know what they're doing." The classic example of unjust suffering is uh, is the Savior's crucifixion. If I may interrupt for a moment, and life is, you are out of you are out to lunch. I don't care how old you are, I don't care how many experiences you've had. You have no right to say to this to a man of unquestionable integrity, there I've said it. I like I've and I like to say it to every person who twists the truth ignorant and ignores the facts and verbally abuses the undeserving. Gosh, I know they're going through that. Man. Problem is, he is not through. Eliphaz keeps on talking about visions in the night and then about how true it is that mankind is not perfect before God. He went on telling Job, we have a maker and he's the only perfect one. And we're not. Of course, Job knew all of that. As a matter of fact, not everything Eli has said was incorrect. He hits the nail on the head when he says to Job, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Job 5 7. Job certainly knew that too. If only Job's aging friend had stopped there. He goes on to let a little more pride seep in. But as for me, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God. Job 5.8 By Eliphaz saying that, he's implying, you haven't done that, Job. I've, I have a question. How does he know what Job has done? We don't always seek God and stated words. During ultra-difficult times, we seek God in silence, deep down in our, our inner soul. Since God is the one who does great and unsearchable things, wonder without number. Job five nine, Seeking Him in silence is altogether appropriate. Job could have answered, I know that. He could have said more. I'm not sitting here in a carnal state. I'm struggling with my grief and pain, yet I'm fully aware that God does great and wonderful things. I am covered with boils, but I've done nothing to deserve this. And you're pointing forth, you're pouring forth all this great theology with no understanding. Please, please. He could have said That and so much more, but Job refrained. Eliphaz does not let up. He has the audacity to say at the end of verse 17, do not despise the disciple of the Almighty. Again, don't miss the implication. You're suffering because you're guilty, Job. You're getting just what you deserve. You're not listening to the lord's reproofs, as a matter of fact, once you repent of your sins you'll just you'll be just fine. How sympathetic and comforting he concludes rather bluntly bluntly, you will know also that you des- your descendants will be many, and your offspring as the grass of the earth, and you will come. To the grave in full vigor, like the stacking of grain in the season. Behold this: we have investigated it, and so it is. Here it is, and know for yourself. Job 5:25-27. That's the answer, Job. Plain and simple. Take this to heart, and you'll fi- be fine. Glad to have been an assistance. This is what you need to hear. I'm done no charge. Whatever in, excuse me, somewhere in that bad sermon, accusations overran compassion. I don't think Job missed it. A person in in pain doesn't feel well, but that doesn't mean there's a lack of discernment. People who are hurting don't do well when we deliver a mixture of Genghis Khan and Mike Tyson rolled into one verbal blast. Furthermore, if you don't have God's clear mind and indisputable facts to prove it, please just love your hurting friend and keep quiet. If there is insight to be gained, it will be gained through comfort and tender mercy, not rebuke and accusation. On occasion, yes, as we saw earlier in Proverbs in the Proverbs, there are those moments when reproofs are necessary, but while covered with boils, no. Job's response, Job responds, excuse me. Oh see Job at the beginning Oh, says Job at the beginning of his response. Linger over his first statement. Oh, that's that my vexation were actually weighted. Job six two meaning life is. Look at me. Consider my circumstances. I have ten dead children. Eliphaz listens to him. I've lost everything. Oh, that my grief were actually weighted, and laid in the balance together with my calamity. If somehow. The weight of my grief could be measured with my calamity; the sum of both would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Don't rush on. Life as may not have heard Job, but I want to make sure we do. Pause and try to imagine the man's anguish. Understand? It's with all of that in mind. My words were rash. Job is being vulnerable. When people come to the end of their tether in the bottomless pit of it all, rash words will come out that they will later regret. But while it's happening, we need to cut them some slack. Let's go there momentarily. You've got a couple of grown kids going a little nuts. Cut them some slack. They'll finally come around. Later, they will get it together. But realize they have set through 20 plus years of your sermons. Allow them to react however they need to for now. Let them say whatever they need to say without trying to be an Eliphaz. To be a good counselor requires enormous timing, great wisdom, long, a long rope, and great understanding. Job is pleading for all of that as he asks Eliphaz to consider his miserable plight. I don't think you'd say these things, Eliphaz, if you sat where I sit. Job also made it clear that he had not denied the words of the Holy One, Job ten six ten. That's quite a statement. It was a fact. I want you to know, Eliphas, that in all of this, hating the day I was born and s- swinging my fist at the fact that I've lived and didn't die beyond birth, the fact that my misery has gotten Unbearable, please, Eliphaz. Understand, I've never once denied the words of the Holy One. Doubt and denial were not in Job's heart. Confusion, yes, and anger, of course. Again, let's go there. Please give your fellow Christians room to feel confusion and express anger in times like this. Job is not defensive, Trying to cover some secret sin, his logic unfolds in several questions. Have I said, give me something, or offer a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the hand of the adversary, or redeem me from the hand of the tyrants? Job 6, verses 22 and 23. Have I asked for any of that? No. Teach me and I will be silent. Show me how I've erred. Job 6.24 What a vulnerable and honest offer. says, I haven't asked for something special. I haven't sought for some angle on this or that would involve you. Then ask, what does your argument prove? His point, you're missing it. Now, please look at me and see if I lie to your face, Job 6.28. I love that line. Look, Eliphaz, I don't traffic in lies. Job knows that lies are absolutely damning to recovery. So he invites Eliphas to point out any lie. Tell me to my face. Look at me. And if you can't, then... I guess deist... Then deist... Desist, excuse me. And then desist. hold back. Turn around. If there is injustice... On my tongue pointed out verse 30 in chapter 6 Job speaks to his friend but in chapter 7 he speaks to his God in doing so he turns his case over to the Lord Job says in effect if I could only have my case brought before the living God he qualifies as the ideal judge I would come before him And I would lay my situation out before him, and I would say, judge rightly, and I will accept whatever you have to say. That he's so silent, he does not speak to me these days. God's silence is worse than his voice, because it's impossible to know what he would say. Job goes on throughout this seventh chapter, pouring out his anguish But God's silence continues. The Lord gives no answer to his grief-stricken soul. He concludes his plea by asking why God had made him his target. Why am I in your crosshairs? Silence. Why then do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquities? Job 7.21 If there is transgression... Why haven't you pardoned it? There's nothing I wouldn't confess. Silence. Humiliated by the words of Eliphaz and haunted by God's silence, Joe speaks like a tormented man here and later. Physically, he's miserable. Emotionally, he's at his wit's end. Spiritually, is confused. Just remember, in addition to everything else, he has lost in all the pain he has—he's enduring. He has now been blamed and shamed, rebuked in front of others and soundly judged. It's horrible. There is no other word for it. It's just horrible. A few words of wisdom, please. This is a good place to pause and learn a few hurtful lessons from Eliphaz and after that, some helpful lessons from Job. Hurtful lessons to be learned from a life as. First, assumptions reduce understanding and insight. I have missed an assumptions I have missed on assumptions so many times in my life. While I can conf- I'm confessing, I need to add that assumptions have also led me away from the truth several times and my counsel. When my mind is made up and you think you are already figured out what caused this, you can't really understand the truth because you're no longer listening. Your own conclusions have blocked your hearing. You're waiting to get your point across because assumptions reduce understanding, insight gets lost. More often than not, as with Eliphas, words become blunt and condemning condemning, excuse me. Second, shame blocks grace and hinders relief. Shame based counsel leaves us under an extra load of guilt rather than offering the fresh hope of recovery. Shame shoves your further shoves you further into the tight grip of anguish. In light of that, I hope you will forever you will forever remove the, these three words from your vocabulary shame on you. That they do not, excuse me, they do no good. So, shame on you, they do no good. Those three words. Third, pride ellipses mercy and compassion. When you come across as though you have the final answer, you imply that you're the model example. You stop the flow of mercy. Pride and compassion cannot exist. I have have read recently of a Christian leader who was traveling with his wife towards Chicago to speak. As he cruised along, he passed his exit. And his wife said, You missed the exit, honey. Well, that's just made him mad. He said, I'm driving this car. I know where I'm going. I know if I missed the exit. She said, you better turn around. He responded, there's no need for that. Silence. He continued on, and the signs ceased. We say Chicago, they began telling about Detroit and other cities not so close to Chicago. She remarked, honey, all the signs for Chicago have stopped. You're going the wrong way. He gritted his teeth and opted for one more exit. When they reached the exit, there was still no sign for Chicago. His wife piped up again, honey, stop being ridiculous and turn around. At that point, he decided to prove her wrong, whatever it took. He began trying to think of a way to get to Chicago without turning around. There was no way. Suddenly, he realized he was sinning. He confessed his sin, gave up, and turned around. She said, see how easy it is? He smiled. Now, why didn't I do that 20 miles ago? Because you're too proud. Understand this applies to women just as much as to men. But guys, we can really be stubborn. I'm sure there are ladies reading this who have learned that we men are willing to drive 100 miles out of the way to prove we know where we're going. I don't know. I've never been that kind of guy. I don't think. Certainly not about driving and missing an exit. Helpful lessons to be learned from Job. I find at least two lessons to remember. First, there are times when others', others words only make our trouble worse. That may seem too elementary to mention, so why would I? Well, I have learned it. Excuse me, well... What, well, have you learned it? Are you still listening to everybody? If so, small wonder, you're confused. The counsel of some people only complicate our troubles. Few traps are more direct disastrous than the trap of believing everything you hear. Let me level with you. Virtually every significant decision I've made in my Christian life where I've sought the counsel of many people, all of them very sincere, someone has counseled me incorrectly. They weren't evil people, they just didn't have sufficient understanding, so their advice was skewed. Since bad counsel doesn't stop with Eliphaz, let's make sure we don't give equal weight to everyone's advice. Pick your counselors very carefully And even then, filter the advice through prayer and common sense. Second, there are times when God's ways only make us more confused. There, I've said it. I've been wanting to say that all through this chapter. I finally worked up the courage. My point? Don't expect to understand everything that happens when it occurs. I'm going to close with a simple suggestion that may make you smile. It's something I want you to practice in front of the mirror. I call it the shrug. Stare into the mirror, shake your head and shrug your shoulders, then say out loud, I don't know. Practice that little maneuver several times a month. I don't care if you have a PhD, you earned... You earned at Yale or in Scotland, just stand in front of the mirror, all alone, nobody around, shrug and say, I don't know. I really don't know. You can add, I can't tell you why that happened. I don't know. Repeat the word several times. I don't know. The great news is that God never shrugs. He never says that with acute uh, perception. He says, I know exactly why this happened. I know the way you take. Uh, Excuse me. I know exactly why this happened. I know the way you take. I know why. I know how long you'll be there. I know what will be the end result. Shrugging and shrugging and Uh, uh, deity are incompatible. Okay, okay, there you go. Shrugging and deity are incompatible. While you're shrugging in genuine humility, saying, I don't know, he says, good for you. Rely on me. And the mystery, trust me. God never promised he would inform us ahead of time all about his plan. His just promise, he just promised he has won. Ultimately it's for our good and his glory. He knows we don't. That's why we shrug and admit I don't know. So if you and I meet someday and you ask me a deep, difficult question, don't be surprised if I shrug and say I don't know. But I don't know the excuse me, I don't know. But I do know this. The death of his son was not in vain. And I do know this, Christ died for you, and I do know this, if you believe in him, he will forgive your sins, and you will go to live with him forever. You'll have heaven, you'll have heaven and all the blessings of it. I do know that it's a tough journey, getting there, full of a lot of confusion, a lot of struggle, a lot of shrugs followed by a lot of I don't knows but then but when the heavens open and we're there hey, there will be no more shrugs I now I know there will be no more shrugs now I know Joe finally reaches the place where he can rest his case as he says but he knows the way I take When he has tried me, he shall come forth as gold. Excuse me. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way, not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23, 10, 12. What peace that brings, he knows the way that I take. And I guess that's the end of chapter 6. So I'm going to take a break and go to, uh, of all things, an AA meeting, because I'm awfully lonely and I just don't have any social life and... I have met a couple Christians there. Yes, I have talked about the coins and how Bill Wilson was influenced by Carali and, and the uh, Diary of Drug Fiend and that the Jesuits' spiritual formations are influenced by 12 steps. Now, saying that, where else am I supposed to go at this point? Everything's corrupted. We live in a fallen world and nothing's perfect. So what do I do? Well, one thing I can do is reach out to others, even in the most corrupt situation, because there's nothing else to do at this point. I know I probably seem like a big hypocrite, but maybe I am. Maybe that's who I really am.